Welcome to Conversations for Life, a marriage and family podcast from Cross Life with hosts Jonathan and Kathleen. Each episode, we sit down and talk about the things that matter most to those that matter most to you. We're so glad you're with us today. Please pull up a chair and join in the conversation. Hey, y'all. Welcome back to another conversation here about God and the Bible and misogyny. You know, last week, Kathleen and I, we discussed how there are certain stories in the Bible, especially in the Old Testament, that can seem to support a misogynistic view of women. And just as a brief reminder, misogyny is a Greek word that denotes, you know, contempt for or or just outright hatred of women. Yeah, and we talked about how it's necessary to read the Bible with its own purpose in mind. Hmm. In other words, the original point of these narratives, the message to the original readers or listeners must direct how we understand them today. And if we read carefully, we will find that the Bible and God himself are not supporting misogynistic views, but they're showing us through these people's lives and stories the dire consequences of their sins. Yeah, you know, Kathleen, I I just hope that the one thing that people walked away with, if nothing else, is that the place that we should go to as believers in the Bible to answer the question, how does God view women, is, is in Genesis 1 and 2. Uh, this is the world in, in its pre-fallen state. This is us in our pre-fallen, pre-sinful state. And so, you know, it's the world as God meant it to be. And what we find there is an unquestionable assertion that women are as equally valued in the eyes of God as men, and that women being women were designed that way by God. So, you know, anytime that there's someone who derides some aspect of womanhood, well, they're really, you know, disrespecting the image of God. Yeah, that's a great point. Um, and to add on to what you're saying, uh, what we covered last week, uh, the way we should approach reading these stories and all the stories of Israel's failures is that these show the reason for Israel's exile and judgment, right. and it shows the seriousness of sin, and it shows the need for a Savior. And so the original audience hearing these stories is going to take it as an explanation for how Israel could be in this state, hmm. uh, broken apart, exiled, seemingly abandoned by God. Um, and, and as we read it, we take it as this is our spiritual heritage, and it's leading up to the most spectacular moment in redemptive history, which we get to look back on, you know, Jesus' death and resurrection. Yeah. Amen. So this week, we're going to deal with an additional area of Scripture that we didn't get to talk about last week, and that's laws, Old Testament laws that on the surface seem to oppress women. So we're going to talk about some, and we're also going to talk about uh, some ancient customs that are important to understand when we read the laws, because they do cause some alarm when we read them. Yeah, and you know, just as a disclaimer for for, for our, our listeners out there, this you know, whenever we dive into the law of the Old Testament, it's never easy. It can be a bit dense, and so we've we've worked really hard to try to think about how can we communicate. Uh, you know, aspects of the law as, as it relates to women in a way that's clear. So, but we do want to, as a disclaimer, just, just for you guys to know, you, you have to have your thinking caps on a little bit for this discussion, <laughs> but I hope that, and we hope that you find it really meaningful. Because, um, you know, Kathy, quite frankly, I think when it comes to the Old Testament law, it, it's just not just with this issue of misogyny. You know, I think we modern day believers struggle with what to do with it. Um, you know, and we're not going to be explaining that in this podcast. This is not a podcast on the law itself and how, how you know, the big picture, how we relate it to us today. But 
um, we do have to talk about how you know the law and the aspects of talking about women, how it relates to this idea of misogyny. But but before we do so, because the law is such a difficult topic, I think I, I do want to mention that in the Old Testament law, it's important for for our listeners to know that if you if you haven't ever studied this before, it's totally fine. Uh, but there are three kinds of of sort of general categories of law in the Old Testament. And um, one of them that, that dealt with how Israel is to worship God in terms of the temple and sacrifices and, and, and even in their own life, which we'll talk about with some ritual purity things, we call this the ceremonial laws. And these laws, again, they guided Israel in terms of how they were to worship God. And it includes things like going to the temple, festivals, holy days, sacrifices, all that kind of stuff. Uh, the second you know, area of law that people talk about is what we call the civic law. And these laws were, were basically aimed at directing how the Israelites were to treat one another and, and everyone who lived inside of Israel. And so we'll be talking some about some of these laws because they do relate to, uh, there's some that talk about women. And then the final area that folks talk about is what is what gets called the moral law. And this essentially is things like the Ten Commandments. You know, don't commit adultery, don't steal, don't commit murder. And um, the, the important thing to know about the moral law is, is whenever we talk about the civic law or the ceremonial laws, they're all rooted in the moral law. And so the moral law permeates everything. And so even as we talk about laws that were relevant specifically for Israel that aren't relevant for us today, we still want to look at, okay, well, how do they apply to us in a moral sense? Um, so I think these categories are helpful. And, you know, uh, just keep in mind that they're not called this in the Old Testament. We're not, these are not absolute categories, but they give us a, a general framework for, as we talk about these laws today, uh, helping our listeners understand what we're talking about. Yeah, so um, that's a great introduction to these uh, categories of law, and um, as you said, we're going to be talking about a few of those, and I think the first principle that we want to think about when we read the civic laws is we should not read them as the ethical ideal, but as the bare minimum of expectation. Mm, Right. So these laws are not fully reflecting God's design for human society and morality, they're simply the most basic requirement for civilized life. Mm. So, you know, I say, like, if you're obeying these, you're not getting a gold star. You're just not being as evil as you could be. <laughs> um, and God sets forth a lot of these laws in situations where there's a high potential for sin and abuse against the vulnerable. Mm. And that's key. So you may have noticed when you're reading the Old Testament, reading um, the, the portions that contain the law, that there are a lot of laws pertaining to women, to the alien or foreigner, to the widow and fatherless, and to the mm. poor. That's precisely because God cares so much for the vulnerable, because he knows that in sinful human society, and that's all human society after the fall, that these groups of people are easily and often oppressed. So a great example that um, relates to this, that relates to women, is Deuteronomy 22, 28 through 29, which says, if a man meets a virgin who is not betrothed and seizes her and lies with her and they are found, then the man who lay with her shall give to the father of the young woman 50 shekels of silver, and she shall be his wife, because he has violated her. Mm. He may not divorce her all his days. So when we uh, modern readers read this, it might sound like the Bible is saying it's okay for a man to go out, rape a woman, and he won't face any consequences. And uh, even worse, it might sound like the woman's forced to marry him. But that is not the point here. Yeah, and that's why it's so helpful to talk about 
you know, the different categories of laws, the civic law and the moral law. The civic laws, as you said, they're not designed uh, to, to point people upward towards God and, and you know, God's desires for them in terms of ethics. In the, in the direct sense, they're designed to sort of, you know, as you talked about, to help restrain evil in the society at large, so relationships with one another. And this is a great example of, of that first principle and, you know, how we should read these Old Testament civic laws. Um, because, you know, it, it's not condoning or supporting the rape of women. It, it's really doing the opposite, actually. Because what the law is actually saying is that if a man does this horrible thing, if he goes out and he commits rape, which is a terrible thing, that there's going to be significant lifelong consequences for him. You know, if we think about life in the ancient world, there were no police officers around as we might think of them today, uh, no detectives. And so usually in, in a case like this, what would happen is the local leaders, the, 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 the local judge maybe in the community, uh, they would hear the case. Um, and then they would decide based on this law, you know, the judgment against the man. Um, and, and so, you know, what's so startling about this law, though, is that in traditional societies, usually it was a woman who would be blamed if she was raped. And this is still true today. You know, around the world today, even, there are many places mm-hmm. where if a woman gets raped yeah. by a man, she becomes unmarriageable. And in fact, she's even judged as somehow mm-hmm. her fault. Yeah. And so when you think about what it was common uh, practice in the Old Testament times and in, even in today in many places. This law, you see how radical it is, it's, it's protecting the woman. That in the event this horrible thing happens, this man rapes her, he has to give her father uh, a bride price and then he has to marry her. And, um, and so this is a serious consequence. It's a large sum of money. And it, it's basically saying to the man, if you do this, you're going to face serious consequences as a result. Yeah, so it's, it's really intended to protect the woman and punish the man. And in a society where women are dependent on men, that's how it was, and sexual purity for women is uh, very highly valued, whether fairly or unfairly, hmm. the woman who was raped will be very vulnerable if the man doesn't marry her. Right. So this law means the woman will have her shame removed, she'll be married, she'll be provided for for the rest of her life. Um, and it would make men think twice before committing rape. Uh, it's a deterrent because it's going to change his life financially and relationally and socially in every way. Um, he would have to pay the bride price, as you said. It's, it's a significant amount, and he's going to have to care for her the rest of his life. Well, you know, something that, that just occurred to me as well is that in these societies where they were not just individuals, they were members of families, mm. that man would bring great shame on his family. Because yes. marriages didn't, weren't just you and this person connecting up and getting married. It was you families uniting together. So mm. imagine now, you know, what was done in private and in secret is now going to be public. And now this man who committed this rape, he has to, his family is going to see it and his family will be ashamed. And whether or not this girl is reputable or not or wealthy or not is, is beyond the point. He has to marry her and pay the bride price. Uh, the bride price, excuse me. So Yeah, and actually in Exodus 2, there's a similar law, um, and it talks about the case when a man seduces a woman, so implies mm. maybe some consent there. And it says that if her father objects to the marriage, uh, the man has to pay the bride price anyway, but he won't be able to marry her. And, um, and so that would be even more crippling because now he's uh, paid this amount, so financially speaking, it's going to be very difficult for him to marry someone else, and socially too, because as you said word is going to spread. This is not an isolationist, individualistic culture, so people will know um, that that's what happened. 
So the first principle that, that you just brought up is, is a good one. Uh, and then and here's a second principle, which is that these, these civic laws were not, were not required to be followed absolutely rigidly. That in the case, like I just said, you know, what would happen is they would go before a judge or local rulers, and they would use this law here in Leviticus as a guide. But they might just, you know, if, if the woman or the father, as, as the case with the seduction case, if they objected to it or whatever, well, the judge could take that into account. This is different than saying, you know, thou shalt not steal. There's no exceptions to that. Right, but in the case of the civic laws, they always applied it on a case by case basis. Right, and a final principle to remember is that the world is a really awful place because of sin, and that's not too hard to remember because we see it all around us. We experience it daily. Uh, People do terrible things to one another, and so these laws are not communicating God's ideal, but restraining human evil as much as possible. And that's a big Mm. part of the law's purpose: restraining evil so that society as a whole can flourish. Yeah, you know, because in the case of, of rape or seduction, these things are not good. They're simply trying to restrain the potential, as you said, for abuse, for evil. And, and so, yeah, so when we read laws like this one here in Deuteronomy 22, 28, and 29, you know, we should not read them as God saying, hey, this is how I want you to live. But rather, this is God's way of saying, look, I know how wicked you all are capable of being as a society, and so I want something different for you. I have, I have basic expectations. And so here are the things that, that, that you know other nations around you commonly practice, but I don't want that to be among you. And in fact, God actually says this very thing at the beginning of Leviticus 18 when he introduces some laws about, about sexual relations. And he says this, The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, I am the Lord your God. You shall not do as they do in the land of Egypt where you lived, and you shall not do as they do in the land of Canaan, to which I am bringing you. You shall not walk in their statutes. You shall follow my rules and keep my statutes and walk in them. I am the Lord your God. You shall therefore keep my statutes and my rules. If a person does them, he shall live by them. I am the Lord. You know, so these laws, these are God's way of restraining evil, and in particular, the kinds of evil that were practiced all around Israel, which is the result of sin. Yeah, thanks, Jonathan. That's a good point. God is particularly pointing out the surrounding nations' practices that he doesn't want his people to latch onto and fall into. So he does give them a positive vision for who they should be. This is not reactionary. But he's very insistent on providing laws that turn them away from the wicked practices that are so common around them that it's like the air they breathe. And so with the uh, civic laws, as as we just brought up, uh, these laws that deal with life in Israel and relationships to one another, the three principles to keep in mind are, first of all, that these are not the ideal. This is not God saying he wants people to do this. This is is the bare minimum that in, in the in the event, the sad event, the tragic event that someone does a horrible thing, typically, usually referencing people who are more vulnerable or oppressed or abused, uh, God wants to protect them. And then uh, secondly, that the laws, they didn't have to be followed rigidly. They would have been applied on a case-by-case basis. So no one would have made to force the woman to marry the man who she didn't want to. It would have been a case-by-case basis. And then, you know, the the third thing, which you mentioned, is that the laws were intended primarily to restrain evil in Israel. So in addition to these civic laws, uh, there's also the other area that I talked about, which is the ceremonial laws. And, And these certainly can trip folks up because, quite frankly, they're a bit alien to us today. But we got to look at them because they do. Uh, some of them do re- refer to women, and I think a, a casual reading might lead women to think, "Wow, what, what's going on here?" 
And so, you know, these laws, again, they deal with how Israel is to worship God, and, and they include a number of laws about cleansings, washings, purity, and going to the temple. And so a great example of this that relates to women is in Leviticus 15, verses 19 to 24. And it says this, that when a woman has a discharge and the discharge in her body is blood, she shall be in her menstrual impurity for seven days, and whoever touches her shall be unclean until the evening. And everything on which she lies during her menstrual purity shall be unclean. Everything also on which she sits shall be unclean. And whoever touches her bed shall wash his clothes and bathe himself in water and be unclean until the evening. And whoever touches anything on which she sits shall wash his clothes and bathe himself in water and be unclean until the evening. Whether it is the bed or anything on which she sits, when he touches it, he shall be unclean until the evening. And if any man lies with her and her menstrual impurity comes upon him, he shall be unclean seven days and every bed on which he lies shall be unclean. Yeah, that's a great example. Thanks for bringing that up. Uh, When you listen to this, you might think, wow, gosh, the Bible has a problem with women. Um, You might be saying, what's wrong with a woman menstruating? How does this make her unclean? And part of the reason this is difficult for us is because we don't understand the meaning of the word unclean in this context. Yeah, and that's just really, and that's important for all of these laws about ritual purity. But especially, I think for, I want to be sensitive. To, you know, I want to talk about this because I want women to know that these laws are not trying to shame women for natural body functions. The idea of clean and unclean, pure and impure, is rooted in the idea of holiness. In fact, the word holy itself actually literally means to set apart for special use. Um, and so we have to remember that that Israel's whole identity as God's people is that they had been set apart. This is exactly what God says to them in Exodus 19.4. He says, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So, you know, Israel is set apart by God to be holy. And they even go through, as a whole nation at Sinai, they even go through a whole ritual of purity to signify that they've been set apart to God. And so the heart of the question about holiness and purity is, quite frankly, you know, how can a sinful people approach and stand in the presence of a holy God? And so human beings, you know, we have, we've been corrupted in every way by sin. And in the, term, in the terminology of the Old Testament law, this corruption is, is kind of referred to as, as being unclean. And sometimes it's clear why God declares a thing unclean or an act or a condition. You know, for example, skin diseases. It's pretty, we can see why that might be unclean. But other times it's not as clear. You know, there are certain foods that Israel is not supposed to eat, like pigs or shellfish. And there's no explanation given. So, you know, we don't want to try and explain every purity law. We, that's not what we're here to do today. But, but I, I will say is that with regard to this particular law that we're just looking at right now about women and menstruation, is that when something makes you unclean, it's not typically something that is sinful in and of itself. You know, for example, skin diseases. Just because you have a skin disease doesn't mean it's because of sin in particular, like you did something sinful, and it's not a sin in itself to have a, have a, have a skin disease, but... You know, diseases themselves are a reflection of sin and in the fall. And so they're, they're a reflection of what we might call the general brokenness of the world. And that's what, you know, the law calls being unclean. And another great example is, is uh, intercourse, sexual intercourse. 
Leviticus 15.18 says, If a man lies with a woman and there is an emission of semen, that both must, must bathe with water and they will remain unclean until the evening. You know, we know that throughout Scripture, sex and, and marriage are a great thing. Children are a good thing, a blessing from the Lord. So obviously, we don't want to conflate the idea of ritual impurity with sinful acts. Most things that make someone unclean are not in and of themselves sinful. And that's helpful with regard to cleanliness laws about women and childbirth uh, that are given in uh, Leviticus 12, for example, and here with menstruation, because it, it, it doesn't allow us to interpret these passages as saying, you know, uh, misogynistically that God is denigrating women or that something about women is, is sinful. This is helpful with regard to cleanliness laws about women and childbirth in Leviticus 12 and menstruation, because it forbids us from interpreting these passages misogynistically. You know, God is not denigrating women or separating out basic womanly bodily functions as sinful or bad. Instead, what we need to see with these laws is that in general, any emission of bodily fluid, whether by a man or a woman, was associated with bodily uncleanness. And for women, that would naturally include menstruation and childbirth. Yeah, and uncleanness is not a synonym for sin, but instead it deals with ritual purity. And this is a concept that's totally foreign to modern Westerners, including you and me, uh, we just don't have this element in our religious or public life. But mm. it was central to the Old Testament law. These laws are not dealing with sin in a direct way as we might think of it. So a woman was not considered to be in sin because she was menstruating. That's not how the laws of ritual purity worked. Mm. In the Old Testament law, God had declared things clean or unclean, pure or impure. Um, and, and certain foods were clean and certain were unclean, you know, like meat from pigs. And certain rituals made you clean, like bathing, and certain rituals made you unclean, like sex. But it's not about that food or act being in itself unclean, necessarily. God, as you, as you said, God made sex, and within marriage, it's a good thing. It's not dirty. It's not sinful. Right. And God makes that clear at the beginning of Genesis. And, um, and think about pigs and other things like shellfish, which were forbidden to the Jews. If we look forward to the New Testament in Acts 10, the story of Peter and Cornelius, God gives a vision directly to Peter, telling him that he's free to eat any kind of animal. Nothing is considered unclean anymore. So pigs aren't inherently sinful, and neither is sex. Um, that's, this, a great, that's a great connection, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So um, as God himself saying, don't call unclean what I have made clean. Yeah. You know, so um, what, what these laws are about is cultivating a reverence among the Israelites for the holiness of God. When they approach God, they're to do so with holy fear. And that's not about being afraid. It's about having a proper awe and respect for God's nature and position. So these laws are concerned with how sinful human beings can stand before God. And frankly, the fact that God even let them come before him mm. at all, especially based on these rituals, is really astounding because um, mm. these weren't doing anything about their sinful nature in their hearts, you know? Mm. Um, so Jesus' work on the cross is the only final and sufficient sacrifice and cleansing. Amen. Um, you know, and I think one of the things that will help us is we need to get away from any association of ritual uncleanness with shame. Because, see, I think that when we hear the word unclean as modern listeners, we immediately jump to thinking that the unclean person would feel shame about it. And so that's why we as modern readers think, well, geez, you know, why, why does God want women to feel shame about their menstruation? Or why should people feel shame about sex? 
being unclean had nothing to do with shame. There's, there's nothing shameful about being unclean in the Israel worship system. All people at different times, and sometimes quite frequently, you know, think about uh, you know newly married couples would be ritually <laughs> unclean and need to go through a cleansing process. So regardless of the exact cleanliness law that we're discussing, we need to get rid of this association of shame with, un, with, with cleanliness. You know, one could easily imagine a woman feeling quite proud, in a sense, of her uncleanliness after having a baby, you know, um, and getting to go through these rituals. It might even, you know, she's doing these rituals. It might help her uh, not only biologically with regard to hygiene, it would also give her, I think, a psychological space and time to process this major life change and to worship God privately through these rituals. So we need to get rid of this idea of shame with uncleanliness. And, and I think, too, that uh, as a side note, we also have to recognize that a majority of the religious practices among the nations outside Israel involved sexual intercourse. And so in a way, uh, it's not all that surprising that activities that are associated with human sexuality and procreation make one unclean and therefore in need of a, a ritual cleansing before they can enter into the place of worship, into the tabernacle. Because it pragmatically, it reinforces uh, you know, the fact that you are not to do what other nations do around you and associate sex with, with, with worship. And even better than that, I think it reinforces the sacredness of sex. Yeah, that's absolutely key to understand. We do want to separate the idea of ritual uncleanness from shame. And I would add that we want to be careful not to read our own personal experiences into the Bible. There are both men and women who feel shame about their bodies, mm. who've been made to feel ashamed about things like getting their period, about other discharges. Uh, that's not the point of these mm. laws about ritual purity. As you said, Jonathan, it's not saying that the natural functions of our bodies are sinful. And we've talked extensively here on Conversations for Life about how we're made in the image of God. Our bodies reflect God's own nature, and they're good. They're mm. broken by sin, but they're good. And God cares about our bodies and what we do with them. Yeah, amen. And, uh, you know, you bringing up your own experience and how we as readers might come into the text and be influenced by it through our own life, that's actually a great segue into talking about the other thing I do want to talk about a little bit today uh, with regard to the Bible and misogyny, which is, you know, the culture and the customs that were accepted, familiar, and maybe even valued among people either within the stories that we're reading about, so Abraham or Isaac or Jacob, so on and so forth, or to the audience who was originally reading it, you know, for the author who was writing to whomever. And so, you know, there's no denying that the Bible's world is a patriarchal world. The women are viewed in relation to the central male figure in their lives. Typically, that's their father or, or then their husband. And, you know, we don't have time to flesh this out in full detail, but we, uh, we actually are going to have a conversation about this very topic in more detail in a few, in a few episodes. Um, but I, wa- I want to bring it up here because many of the customs and the cultural values that we find in the Bible, especially in the Old Testament, come out of a patriarchal view. So assumptions, values, choices, behaviors, they reflect you know, the patriarchal societies in the, sto- in, in the stories and of the original audiences. And so what I want to suggest is that as modern believers, we don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. That we recognize that ancient societies, just like modern ones, you know, they reflect the glory of human beings as image bearers of God. And thus, they're, they're bound to live in some respects in accord with God's design, um, you know, even if they can't help it. But at the same time, recognize that sin has corrupted everything, so that what God originally designed to be good becomes a vehicle for pride, hate, wickedness, injustice, you know, so on and so forth. 
Yeah, that's really important for us to recognize. And Francis Schaeffer, a Christian thinker of the 20th century, described humanity as a glorious ruin. Mm. It's glorious because of the original design and intent and beauty, but it's a ruin because it's fallen. So think about an architectural ruin. You know, right now our kids are really obsessed with ruins and all their Lego creations are some kind of ruin in the jungle and it's really cute. Um, but if you look at ruins of European castles or some Greek architecture, these Latin American civilizations, you can see some remnant of the former glory. It, it still impresses you and awes you. And so this applies to our cultures and our customs, including the various American cultures and including Christian cultures in America. Mm. Um, they, they reflect God's original intention to a degree, but in a ruinous state. So mm. even if we disagree with the way ancient societies worked, we have to recognize that they are not entirely evil people simply because their customs are different from ours. There are things in those cultures that we look at and we find fault with because they're not in accord with God's design. And we may be more in accord with God's design in that particular area. That's okay to recognize. It's true in some cases. But we don't want to fall into the folly of thinking that we are automatically more enlightened and righteous uh, in, in our day and age. And in some ways, we are less in accord with God's design. Yeah, that's, and that's, I think this is a huge principle you know, for all of us to, to approach the text humbly, recognizing that, yeah. that we, um, you know, we're not these great enlightened people, and our culture is not sort of, you know, we don't want to canonize our culture and assume right. that our culture right. is, is one-to-one with what God values. And a, a good example is marriage. And I think, too, this is also brings up you know, how we, we don't even see our own assumptions. It's always helpful to know not just what you might you know, explicitly know to be a, a culture value, but even the assumptions we make uh, without even knowing about it. And a great example is marriage. You know, it was a custom in, in the traditional cultures for the parents to be involved in arranging a marriage. And you know, we even see this in, uh, in one story with Isaac. Um, it's other stories as well, but you know, in that story, Abraham tells his servant to go get a girl for Isaac from his kinsman. And so the servant goes, and God leads him to Rebekah, and she returns to wed Isaac. And the arranged marriages were the norm back then. But in our culture, uh, you know, many would actually see this as maybe sinful or oppressive. Um, you know, it's an example of people with more power, the parents, forcing their kids into unhappy marriages for the parents' benefit. Hence, every Disney movie ever made. But um, <laughs> now, was this, now, you know, was this practice abused? Well, well yes. You know, just as all social practices, ancient and modern, are abused. You know, sin is universal. But is the practice of arranged marriage inherently more sinful than our own practice, you know, with, with individuals who are dating and then marrying sometime later? Um, we might say yes because it's our culture and we believe the individual should have all the choice and all the freedom to say yes or to say no and to have many of options. But I think what's ironic for us to realize is that an ancient person might think the opposite. They might think that what we think is a really good thing, this individual freedom and this independence, would have been, you know, to them really selfish and really negative for the community. And so, you know, because back then the whole community had to work together for survival. And and for someone to have acted in this way so individualistically really would have been to the community seen as really selfish and prideful and 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 you know, dishonoring to their parents. So it's just something for us to keep in mind that that the customs of the biblical world, you know, while while no doubt being used by sinful people for sinful things, they're not inherently more sinful or less sinful than our own. Both their culture and ours reflect to some degree God's original intent. Now, you know, uh, it's just unfortunately back then and today, God's original intent has been horribly marred by sin. 
And so, you know, certain aspects of our culture, we might say, are better reflect God's goodness, as you already mentioned, and His righteousness. Uh, but certain aspects are worse than theirs, and, and so on and so forth. Yeah, that's a great point. And I think it's, it's a hard mental exercise to accept that we are just as sinful as ancient people. And in various ways, we have sin embedded in our own cultural practices, and we even embrace it. We really are taught from a very young age to believe that we have progressed as human beings and we are better people now. Um, now, So I'm really glad to live now and not a few thousand years ago or even a few hundred years ago. And I've said this to you before, Amen. Jonathan, uh, when we're discussing especially the state of things for women and people in general, I'm glad that I have the freedom to choose who I marry, mm. who I associate with, what sort of education and life path I take. Um, I'm even glad that even though we live here in America in a very individualistic culture, that I can still choose to pursue community. I can still choose to look critically at my culture and try to see our blind spots and live the way God intended. Um, So we're not romanticizing the past at all. We're just also not romanticizing the present. Mm. Um, And of course, there have been many milestones of human society like industrialization that change women's place in the world dramatically. Um, but yeah, as you mentioned, Jonathan, I want to be sure we're aware of how we ourselves fall short. And um, you said, you know, the ancient people, they might look at our culture and say, that's the things that we deem really good and say, oh, gosh, you know, that's really <laughs> right? sinful. Um, and there are ways in which modern developed cultures make women very vulnerable, too. In secular America, women and girls even are expected to give away their bodies in ways that don't affirm their dignity. Young girls mm. are sending nude pictures of themselves to boys. And of course, they're choosing to do that, but the environment of schools and peer groups make them vulnerable to the pressure and the expectation. And once something like that's on the internet and in texts, it can go anywhere. Mm. And women are expected to have sexual flings with men with no strings attached, and they're mm. shamed, even by other women for thinking that sex should mean something and for caring about the men that they're sleeping with. Um, And then, you know, I I would say it's a good thing in in many ways that pregnancy outside of marriage has been destigmatized. It's a horrible thing for women to feel like uh, they have to abort their babies or hide in shame Mm. or they lose any future uh, educationally or within their church and community. But it does come at a high price because now there's no expectation that if a man gets a woman pregnant, he will marry her and care for her and his child. Mm. So these things were not happening in the ancient world. And I think that they would look at us and say, what a barbaric culture to dishonor their women like that and mm. to not provide for their children like that. Um, and then, of course, a really big one is legalized abortion. There's no question that abortion and, and infanticide were happening in the ancient world, um, even sometimes in Israel to their shame. God actually repeatedly through the prophets and in the law tells the Israelites not to be like the other nations who do things like sacrifice their children in the fire to false gods. Mm. And through the prophets, he indicts those nations and Israel for doing it. Um, so the part of our culture which celebrates this is no different whatsoever from ancient pagans who murdered their children in an attempt to manipulate their false gods. You know, there's, um, there, there are, everything you just said is so good, and I hope that um, the folks, if, if you were kind of da- dazing out a little bit, you, you rewind and listen to that. It was so good. And, and I think the fact that you brought up, you know, how we might mistake you know, uh, our, our culture today in the modern world for having it all together with regard to women and for honoring women when, when actually, if you look at the reality of it, that you can see areas where women today experience a great deal of dishonor, a great deal of, um, uh, 
you know, hardship that is associated with all the things that in our culture get celebrated. Um, and so I think, you know, what I find uh, really helpful with, with the Bible is that when you look at the Old Testament, you know, as we talk about this culture, these cultural customs, you know, last week we talked about Ruth and Boaz. And there's such a good reminder that the people of God who were faithful to him in the mm-hmm. Old Testament recognized you know, the fallen aspects of their own culture to some degree. You know, no one sees it perfectly. We don't see it perfectly. We're still influenced by the secular culture around us, just as Ruth and Boaz were by their culture. But they're, you know, guided by God's word and his spirit that you're able to look at your own culture and, and be critical of it. And so, you know, I have no doubt that that where there were abuses of women and misogyny uh, and cultural practices of ancient Israel, those who were seeking to follow God and honor him and honor him recognized mm. um, yeah. the call to follow God and to reject those. Because when you read the Old Testament, it's very clear Israel pretty much was polluted by by corrupt practices of, of the nations around them from the very beginning. So um, I think it, it, to be a faithful Israelite in the Old Testament would have meant being critical of your own culture in a, in a practical way, just as we are today. Um, so, man, these are all great thoughts. Um, it's been a really great conversation. There's so much more that, that could be said. And um, we're going to continue the next few weeks with some, real, some related topics. Um, as always, we want to remind you that Conversations for Life is a podcast ministry of Cross Life. And that Cross Life's mission is to equip and empower married couples and parents to cultivate life in the home. We are a ministry supported by folks just like you. And so if that's something that that God is laying on your heart, please feel free to visit www.crosslifetoday.org forward slash give for more information about how you can support our ministry. We look forward to being with you next week. And we're actually going to be talking about God as as our Father and how we can relate to Him as our Father, even if we've experienced trauma in life related to the men in our life. So come back for that that conversation. We look forward to seeing you then. Until then, take care and God bless.